We're going to start today, if this clicker works, actually with a brief clip. So could I actually have uh, maybe like turn off some lights in the in the back? Yeah. It's like, you know, when you went to class back in middle school and you saw like the, the TV screen up in the front as soon as you walked in, you get super. Anyway, no. Is that really old? That's when VCRs are. St- anyway. OK. All right. Here we go. Okay, sit in that chair. All right, here's the deal. Marshmallow, for you. You can either wait, and I'll give you another one if you wait, or you can eat it now. When I come back, I'll give you another one, so then you'll have two. But stay in here and stay in the chair till I come back, okay? All right. I'm gonna go do something and then I'll come back. It smells yummy. It smells really So it's up to you. You can have it now or you can wait. Okay? I'll be back. Stay in the chair, okay? Okay. So I'm going to leave and then I'll come back, okay? So you can either eat it right now or you can wait. Either way, okay? Okay. How'd you do? Did you do good? You did? Yeah. You wanted to eat it, didn't you? Yeah. So did I tell you I'd give you another one? Okay, now you can have both. You need them. <laughs> oh man, the level of anxiety just watching this. Everybody was like, 
Oh my gosh, please make it. Please make it through the two minutes. I, I think I probably would have been that redheaded kid. Like, mm, yeah, just right now, I'm going to enjoy this one marshmallow. I don't need two. Um, so this is an actual experiment. I, this is kind of cruel to do this with kids. But like that, the only way to actually make sure that it's genuine is that the kids don't know that they're being, you know, uh, you know, measured or tested or even uh, taped. I think uh, hopefully their parents know. Uh, but um, it was an actual experiment. And it is, you can gain all kinds of, you know, different kind of lessons, extrapolate different lessons from this kind of video. Um, you can talk about, you know, the, the character that it takes for delayed gratification. You can talk about, you know, upbringing. You can talk about developmental stages. You can t- talk about so many different things. And this is, you know, an actual studied experiment that you study, like, in, in psychology. Um, you can talk about all these different things, about child rearing and, and whatever. But... Um, one thing that I do want to note, and this is often something that doesn't get said when we talk about this experiment in particular, even when you're talking within like secular psychologists in, in that arena, it is that no matter how self-disciplined or well-raised a child is, no, uh, no child would have attempted to wait if there hadn't been a promise of a future reward. Like, no kid would have just sat there in front of that one marshmallow and just waited for three minutes for no reason at all. Like, it needed to be really enticing. Like, the marshmallow needed to be really good. And then the thought of another marshmallow needed to be, like, it needs to be worth the wait. And that's what drives these kids to actually wait. And especially that, that, uh, the last kid that stuffed the, you know, the two in, in his mouth. Like, he knew if he just held on long enough, that second marshmallow was coming. I think if there had been, you know, um, uh, a part in, you know, a part in, of his mind that kind of, like, doubted, like, is this really going to happen? Like, I don't, I don't think they're going to come back. Or maybe they forgot about me. Or maybe there's no other marshmallow. They're just trying to torture me right now. If there was anything like that, they wouldn't have waited. Would you have waited? No, right? I, I wouldn't have waited. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I think probably I would have hit like the one minute mark and be like, ah, I just got to eat it. So it's not just a matter of self-discipline. And it's not just a matter of like how, you know, you can, you've been trained to wait and, and not just go for what is best in that moment right away. But it's also worth noting that all of that depends on what is being promised. Two things actually, what is being promised and how long the delay, those two things. Now, if you were asked to do more than just sit in front of a marshmallow for two minutes, right? If it was a greater sacrifice, it means that the reward, reward needs to be much better. It can't just be one more marshmallow. It needs to be like a bag of marshmallows coming your way. That would make you wait, say, for an hour. Would you wait for an hour for an entire bag of marshmallows? I, I think, depending, I guess, depends on the marshmallows. But all I'm trying to say is, if the sacrifice is greater, then you are, you need to have payoff. You need to, the reward for it to be that much better. If the wait is longer, you need the reward to also be that much better. There's a promise that is given to you. And that promise often will determine how long you're willing to wait for it and what you're willing to do for it as well. So it's not just an arbitrary thing. In your mind, you're calculating somewhat, like the cost-benefit analysis. And so there's a power in promise. And the more the sacrifice, 
and the longer the wait, then that means that the greater the reward has to be. The light at the end of the tunnel has to be that much more enticing. Now, like I said, the more the sacrifice is required of you, then the bigger the reward needs to be. The longer you're asked to wait, then the greater the sacrifice also has to be. Now, let me ask you, what kind of promise would would you be required in order for you to wait for something for, say, a month? Okay, you're already calculating in, in your minds, like, what, what will make me just wait for a month? Or what would it take for you to wait for something for two years? Now we're talking, like, big stuff, right? What would it take for you to give up a weekend versus what would it take for you to give up 10 years? All these things we're calculating in our minds. Now I'm going to go to the extreme. What kind of reward would be necessary for you to not just give up two minutes of your life looking at a marshmallow, but for you to actually lay down your life, for you to risk your life, for you to go through hardship, for you to go through neglect, for you to go through abandonment, for you to pay a really high price, what kind of reward would be necessary to make it worth it? What kind of reward would be necessary for you to give up your entire life, not just two minutes, not just the next five days, like the next however many years the Lord allows you to live, like 70 years, 80 years? What would it require for you to lay those 80 years down? The greater the reward must be if you're going to sacrifice that much. Now, there's a promise in the Bible that is not two minutes. It's not even a lifespan. As of now, it's probably been about 3,000 years. It's, about, it's been about 3,000 years. Something has been promised. And it's not just inconvenience that people will be willing to go through. It's actually people in all these different generations, all these different backgrounds, all these different cultures, all these different languages, all across the board, they're actually not just willing to go through inconvenience, but lay down their lives. And that is the reward of Jesus Christ. And that is the whole point of the season of Advent. We are waiting for a promise. We're waiting for something that has been spoken of, something that has been revealed in part, but something that will come into full fruition as well. If you guys know, uh, you know, this Bible that we all have, sometimes we have digitally, but if you have the actual Bible, um, it's very conveniently packaged for us. But this is kind of not the way the Bible came. In its original form, it is actually written by different people across the span of several hundred years. It's written in different languages. It's written in different places. And all of that is compiled into one book just for our convenience, right? But when we think about the things that are promised in the Bible, it is not just, let me give you um, an example. If I was to say, okay, next week, we're going to have a newcomer come in. They're going to be wearing a green sweater with a brown teddy bear on it. And they're going to be wearing black Uggs. 
or something like that. Something really specific. Uh, that's very bad fashion. Uh, but, uh, well, if, if that's what you're wearing today, I'm sorry. Um, but, like, imagine it was something like that specific. Like, I gave you already, like, you know, three, de- four details about them, and it's going to be next week. If somebody actually shows up like that, you'd be like, dang, okay, there's, like, you're right on point there. Imagine I did that, not with, like, five different details. Imagine I did a hundred of them. Like, this is going to be their hair color. This is going to be their eye color. They're going to like ping pong. I don't know, like really random things. Um, the more things that I promise about that actually are fulfilled, the more you, you'll be like, dude, there's, there's something on that. Like there's something on you. Like you're not just wildly guessing here. Like I could say right now something really easy. I could be like, well, there's going to be an Asian boy that wears glasses that will visit our church next week. That's like, like, come on, like you're not even trying there, right? That's like statistically speaking, that's just going to happen. So I'm just talking about a week. Now imagine I did it like something that I'm not even going to see in my lifetime in 200 years, 300 years, like in 300 years, there'll be a person that is born in a certain city in Tegu and they're going to have, you know, these parents and then they're going to do this and this is going to be their profession. And I give you all these different kind of details. Um, the more I extend myself in that way, time-wise and detail-wise, the more you're like, okay, this is not just Susie talking about this. There's like, there's something more behind it. And that is part of the beauty, just part of the beauty of the scriptures. We have not just a couple dozen, we have hundreds of prophecies written across a span of hundreds of years in different languages from different places compiled together and they all still confirm one another. That is the power of scripture and all of it is pointing towards one man that is God in the flesh. There's a promise that has been that has held believers for thousands of years. It's made men and women lay down their lives all across history for the last 3,000 years at the very least. And it is all pointing towards this one man. Now, this promise came at the very beginning. We're not talking about just two-thirds of the way through the Bible. We're talking about three chapters into the Bible. And we're talking about Genesis, uh, a promise given in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is as soon as, you know, man and woman fell into sin. And this is what God promises He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It is prophesied about 600 to 1,000 years B.C. We're talking about 600 to 1,000 years B.C. This was prophesied. And 600 to 1,000 years later, we see in the New Testament, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of woman, born under the law. We go back to the book of Genesis, this time chapter um, 49, and it is prophesied that a ruler would come from Judah. This is spoken to Jacob, and it says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from uh, between his feet. And again, 600 to 1,000 years later, in a different language, that was prophesied in Hebrew. Now it comes fulfilled, and it's written in the form of Greek, by Matthew, and it says, 
And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, let's leave the book of Genesis. We're going to go to the book of Samuel. This is about 500 to 600 B.C. And it says, um, he's talking to David. God is talking to David. And he says, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. And he shall be to me a son. So God spoke the promise that a descendant of David will establish a kingdom forever. And then about 500 to 600 years later, as soon as we open up the New Testament, the first chapter, first verse of the New Testament, we see Matthew writing the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay, now now we talked about, you know, just that. There's so much more. There's hundreds more. Let me just walk you through a couple more. In the book of Isaiah, this is about 600 to 800 Uh, years before Jesus was born. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So it's prophesied that he would be born of a virgin. In the account of Luke, we see, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. There's an angel speaking to Mary. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. This is the prophet Isaiah being fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. In Jeremiah, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It says that God will make a new covenant with his people. In the book of Luke, we see Jesus saying in, his, in the Last Supper, This cup that is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. Let's look through a couple more. The book of Malachi, this is one of the last books of the Old Testament. Malachi, this is about 400 years before Jesus was born. He says, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to uh, suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So God says that he will be preceded by a messenger. And of course, we know in the New Testament, at, at the birth of John the Baptist, this is what his father says to him. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. One more from Malachi. This is also, again, 400 years before Jesus was born. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now, 400 years later, almost by accident, you guys know that uh, you know, Joseph and Mary, they were kind of from Bethlehem, but they actually weren't there when they were, about to, uh, they were about to give birth, right? The only reason why they were there is because of a census that was happening, right? So it's almost by accident something happened where they had to go to Bethlehem, and that's where they happened, you know, to give birth to Jesus. In Matthew 2, 1, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So again, you'd be impressed if it was just a couple of prophecies, but there are hundreds written by people who lived in different places and different languages, and all of them point 
to this one man, Jesus Christ. This is something that really, um, sorry, it kind of like the nerdy side of me is like, are you kidding me? Like you can read the entire old Testament with a lens of like, where do they talk about Jesus? If you were to hold a highlighter and go through the entire old Testament and just highlight what is prophesying Jesus, what is a foreshadowing of Jesus? What is a prophecy of Jesus? You would highlight almost entire thing. Like there's so much of Jesus embedded in the old Testament. Now, if we were to jump back to the book of Isaiah, there's one particular promise, a prophecy that is given regarding Jesus, and it's in Isaiah chapter 9. And the really interesting thing about this prophecy in particular is that the prophecy comes at the tail end of a lot of really bad news. Like, if you guys have read to the book of Isaiah, it's like 80% of it is like really depressing. The 20% is great, but 80% of it is super depressing. It's like, you will be ravaged by this country and that country will come from the north and then they'll kill all your sons and your... It's, it's really depressing. And this prophecy in particular is coming at the end of prophesying. You're going to go through some really hard times as a people. You're going to go through captivity, exile, slavery. There's going to be hundreds of years where you're going to look all around you and not see where is God in the middle of all this. You're not going to see hope. You're not going to see his promises being fulfilled during that time. And it is there, interestingly enough, that God chooses to drop one of these amazing prophecies about the coming of Jesus Christ. Let me propose this to you as an idea. And this is something that I just personally believe. And it is, it is because of what they're going to be going through that they need. It's almost like this caliber of promise. Have you ever gone through a time in your life where, man, if God's promise hadn't been there, I, I don't think I could have made it through. Like, if I didn't know that at the end of this, God is still good, that God is still faithful, that he's going to work all things for those who love him. If that promise hadn't been there, you wouldn't have made it through. And it was the power of that promise that gave you the strength and the hope and the faith to walk through that season of testing, of trials, of delays, of curveballs, of things you never expected happening to you. In the same way, this is what I believe, God drops this amazing promise of Jesus Christ at the tail end of prophesying. These are all the um, really terrible things that are going to happen to you as a people. You're going to go through things that you never imagined would happen to you. And it's not just going to be like, oh, I just had a really bad week. It's hundreds of years, hundreds of years. Your children and your children's children and your children's children's children, they will be all going through this. You will not see the promises of God being fulfilled right there and then. That's why I'm giving you this promise. You need to hold on to this promise to carry you through the next hundred years, the next hundreds of years. So if we were to pick up in Isaiah, uh, we're going to backtrack just a little bit, a couple of verses right before we go into chapter 9. So it's talking about what it's going to be like to walk through the season of testing. And it says, distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward, they will curse their king and their God. It's going to be so hard because they're going to be going through inner turmoil. They're going to have physical lack. They're going to be homeless, roaming around through the land. And when they finally reach such a place of desperation and hopelessness, Instead of finding a respite in that place, there's going to be a sense of anger that rises up within them. 
They're going to become enraged and they will experience a sense of deep betrayal and abandonment. They will curse their king and their God. They're going through a really, really, they're going to be going through a really hard time. And it's not just them personally. They're going to look all around them. They will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into utter darkness. There's hopelessness all around them. So it's just when you think it can get worse, it just keeps getting worse. This is, this is what God is prophesying to his people. And then when we move into Isaiah chapter 9, this is what the first verse says. Nevertheless, this is such an important word. It's like finally you can catch your breath after you know, the first few chapters of doom and gloom. Oh, did, did, did I skip some? Yes, me. Might be. Okay. Nevertheless, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned, finally. So this is payday, like finally. The ray of light that you've been hanging on for for hundreds of years. And this is what it looks like. God will enlarge the nation and increase their joy. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Finally, finally, they get a break. There's someone who's coming that will shatter the yoke that burdens them. Something that is powerful enough to break the oppression from off of them. Now, this is not just a spiritual thing. It's not something that is hypothetical. We're talking about a people that are actually under the reign and the domain of a different nation. So this would be the equivalent of someone coming, prophesying to say Korea in 1942, while Korea was still under um, Japanese rule. During that time, somebody prophesying, there's actually going to be a time when this oppression, when this outer force, external force that is over you, it'll be broken off from you. So there's a, sh- a yoke that will be shattered now, yoke is not something that is very, like, light. You can just, like, shrug it off. It is, a ma- just, like, picture-wise, it is a massive slab of, you know, of, of um, whatchamacallit, of either wood or metal that is put on beasts of burden. It is not something that, you know, just shrug it off and it falls off. It is something that, in and of itself, it already bears a lot of weight. And not just that. Things are attached to that so that you drag not just the weight of that, but you're dragging the weight of something else on top of it as well. So this is something really huge, really heavy, something that just mere chance, just luck will not get rid of. It needs something or someone needs to come in and shatter and break off this yoke. It goes on to say, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be fuel for fire. It means Every item used in warfare will now be discarded. You don't need it anymore. 
the, the weapons that you use, the, the garb that you use in warfare, you will not lead it. You won't need it anymore. And how does God propose to end this time of striving, of warring, of battling? It is simply through this. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Do you hear the weight of this promise after years, decades, and even centuries of just not seeing the ray of light that you've been waiting for? To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders This is a promise that is spoken to a people who are about to enter into captivity. They're going to enter into a time where they will see no hope. And this is the hope that they will have to cling on to for 400 years. It's very important to note that to us, a child is born. So Jesus had to be born. Like it was, he was an actual, it's weird to talk about this way. He was an actual fetus, right? Like he was, He was a a child, a baby in someone's tummy. But a son had to be given. A son, this son could not be born. This is the eternal son that was from the beginning. This is the son that already pre-existed even before Mary ever came on the scene. There was a son from eternity past that was already existing. And the son had to be given. And the government will be on his shoulders. We're going to work through just a few of the names that this son that is given, this child that is born, the, the, the names that he's given, he'll be called wonderful counselor, wonderful counselor. It doesn't, when we read this, it doesn't sound like it's all that great, right? Like, wow, you're a wonderful cook. Well, you're a wonderful, you know, like guitarist. Well, you're a wonderful counselor. Okay, so that's why we need to go a little bit deeper. The Hebrew term is Pele Yoetz. Can everybody say Pele Yoetz? Pele Yoetz. So wonderful. It's not just like, oh, you're super duper. It means you are a marvel. Wonderful, full of wonder. So a marvel, a wonder, a miracle. And counselor doesn't mean just somebody who talks a good talk. It actually means also someone who not just counsels and advises, but somebody who plans and executes. So when we talk about wonderful counselor, this child that is to be born, the son that is to be given, we're not just talking about somebody who like, yeah, you gave really good advice. Like that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about someone who is miraculous in his plan, perfect in his wisdom, and also powerful in its execution. That's what wonderful counselor means. Second name that we see here is mighty God, mighty God. This is something that we also tend to just gloss over, but in Hebrew, it it is El Gibor. Can everybody say it together? El Gibor, El Gibor. Okay. So mighty, it means very mighty and particularly powerful. It's not just like, oh, you're pretty strong. Like, wow. But it's like mighty in battle. Like you destroy, you obliterate your enemies. That kind of mighty. 
and God is God, right? So mighty is super mighty, particularly powerful, you, you know, like a terror to their enemies, and God is God. So we're talking about a child that is El Gibor, a child that is very mighty, particularly powerful, a child that is born to power, one who shatters their enemies and inspires terror in the hearts of their adversaries. This is the kind of child that we're talking about. Now, third, we're talking about everlasting father. This is a weird term to use on a child, right? He's going to be an everlasting father. The term in Hebrew, it means it is abiad, abiad. So everlasting, it means perpetual, continual, eternal. And father is not just the person, like the function of a father, but it also connotes one who ensures provision, protection, and promises like inheritance. This is the role of a father. So we're talking about a child who will perpetually, continually, and eternally secure your provision, your protection, and the promises that are over your life. Someone, someone who secures our inheritance as sons and daughters that have been adopted into the family of God. This is no ordinary child. And then lastly, we talk about the prince of peace. Prince of peace. And this term is probably my most favorite of all the names that Jesus carries in this prophecy. Prince of peace is Sar Shalom. Prince means authority and ruler. And peace is not just like, oh, like things are calm. Like peace, the Hebrew term for it is shalom. It, in, it means so much more than the absence of turmoil. It means physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, even relational well-being and flourishing. So when we call Jesus Christ the Prince of Peace, Jesus, you're calling Jesus as the authority that ensures our physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual well-being. Somebody who has the power to do that. If you think about all the areas in our life where we need peace, we think about the ways that we war within ourselves. We think about the ways that we are uh, you know, in conflict with one another. We think about the ways in which we are co- in conflict with God with our surroundings, with things happening around us. In all those different areas, Jesus Christ is the Sar Shalom, the authority that is able to bring peace into all those different areas. If we were to depart from Isaiah for just a second, Jesus in John chapter 14, he says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled nor let it be fearful. So this is a peace that wars against a heart that is troubled or fear from encroaching. He also says a couple chapters later, these things I've spoken to you that in me, you may have peace in me, in the person that I am in my character, in who I am. You may have peace in the world. You may have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. He's not saying things are going to be lovey-dovey and rainbows and unicorns all around. He's saying there's going to be trouble. There's going to be tribulation. There's going to be persecution. Things will not turn out the way that you wish they would. Why? This is a broken world in need of a savior. And until he comes, it will not be what it's supposed to be. We often wrestle with this idea of like, but, but, you know, like, but 
this is not, my life is supposed to be much more, or my calling is supposed to be much more, or this is not what I envision my life to be. That is a very normal thing to think in a broken world. And until Jesus comes back and makes all things whole again, we will always be in some measure of that tension. But this is what he promises to us, that in the middle of this tribulation, we can take courage for Jesus has overcome the world and he is our peace. So if we go back to Isaiah 9 or 6, we're talking about a child that is born, a son that is given, the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Pele Yoetz, Yoetz, a miracle working planner and executor. We're talking about El Gibor, a God that is mighty in strength and uncontested in power. We're talking about Abi Ad, the provider and sustainer and protector now and forevermore. We're talking about Sar Shalom, the authority that shatters fear, anxiety, insecurity, the one who's able to war against all the things that come against us. This is the kind of child that is promised. This is the kind of savior that we are given. And it continues on to say of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and, uh, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And just in case we deceive ourselves in thinking that we will do it, that somehow we will figure out a way, it'll be, it's on us, just in case we fall into that deception. Isaiah says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. This crushes all our hopes of ever being completely self-reliant. There's no such thing as being a self-reliant Christian. The whole notion of being a Christian is that you have to depend on God to fulfill everything that only he can fulfill. Now, the reason why I bring up this isn't just because this is a typical Christmas passage that you read during Advent. But I believe that during this season where we as a church are trying to land somewhere, we're trying to figure out who we are, we're trying to get to know one another, we're trying to rebuild a sense of community and, and direction and purpose and all these different things. If the promise behind all these things is one day we will have a place of our own. One day I will know everybody you know, who sits here. One day, um, whatever it is that you're looking forward to, whatever promise it is that you're looking forward to, I kind of have bad news for you. I don't know if we'll ever land there. I don't know if there ever will be that ideal magical day when everything is perfect. Like we've arrived. Like we can settle here forever. If that is the promise that you're holding on to, I just have really bad news for you. No matter what church you go to, no matter how many people come, no matter how much our finances recover, no matter, it doesn't really matter. All those things, even if everything was to fall into place, which they probably won't until Jesus comes back, hopefully. Um, if that is a promise that you're holding out for, you're not going to make it through the season. You're going to get discouraged. You're going to get, you're going to feel betrayed and abandoned. And man, after all I've done, or like, man, how much longer do I have to wait? You're going to feel all these different things. The promise that you're holding out for, that marshmallow you're waiting for, right? You're not going to hold out for that long. You're not going to hold out for that long for something so earthly. Does that make sense? Something that can be contained 
just in this world, in, in this time. But if what we're holding on for is something much greater than, oh, I have a pretty decent church, you know? If it's something much greater that you're looking to as your reward, then I feel like this is going to be a great season. And I think it's going to be the perfect people to run with. People who are not looking just for something earthly, just something that will, you know, like, oh, I just hope that next week will be great. And then the week after that, and that's not what we're, we're going for. We're going for something much, much bigger than that. Our hope is not just in the earthly church. We're talking about a hope that is grounded in the rock of Jesus Christ, a church that will defy the darkness around us, especially as times get even darker, a church that is able to withstand the test of time where the gates of hell will not prevail against her. It's a church that is fixed on her cornerstone, on the rock on which it is built. Now, this sounds a little bit, you know, a little bit dramatic for just a regular Sunday, right? You're just hoping for like, oh, I wanna, you know, give me some encouragement so I can go home, you know, feeling kind of good. Um, the reason why I felt really strongly to preach on this is uh, a news article that was published about three, four days ago. And it is titled, My Declaration of Faithful Disobedience. So it's, a, it's an article that was published this past week. It is written by a pastor called Wang Yi. And he's from the under, underground Chinese church. And what is happening right next door is that there's a massive, there's a massive crackdown happening right now in China. When we are kind of removed from, like, uh, you know, from what's happening in the church all around and we're very inward focused and we just care about just this church here, then, you know, the kind of messages I think that are appropriate are different. But this past week, as I was reading this article, something in me just became very, like, dissatisfied. Dissatisfied with just, you know, just let's just keep, you know, our little gathering. Okay. Let's just make it, you know, let's just get by. Let's just make it to 2019. You know, like it felt like I was aiming for so little and I was trusting in God so little, something that required me very little faith. But as I was reading this article, I was just like reminded once again that the church is much bigger, that God is much bigger and he's doing something right now if we are so inward focused, if we're so preoccupied with what's happening just, you know, within me and within like my close friends around me, we're going to miss out on actually a lot of the things that God is doing right now. And actually starting last Sunday. So last Sunday when we were out here, you know, gathered out there in, in the lobby. Last Sunday, starting last Sunday, about 100 Chinese pastors were imprisoned. Um, and... Knowing this, this pastor that just, you know, published this article, knowing this, he wrote out an article that would be released by his congregation if he were imprisoned for over 48 hours. So that's why it was released. So he was effectively imprisoned, and it wasn't just a slap on the wrist. It wasn't just like, don't do that again, and we send you out. It's somebody who's going to probably be there for a while. And he had instructed his congregation, if I'm not released within 80, uh, 48 hours, 
you need to release this declaration. Um, so like this mindset is like, so like, doesn't it feel very distant? Like who's thinking about persecution in this, you know what I mean? Like who's thinking about persecution just, you know, here in Korea, not very many people, but we're talking about persecution happening right now and not too far away from where we are. And I wanted to just read a few excerpts from this article. This is just part of it. This is what he says. If God decides to use the persecution of this communist regime against the church to help more Chinese people to despair of their futures, to lead them through a wilderness of spiritual disillusionment, and through this, to make them know Jesus. If through this, he continues disciplining and building up his church, then I am joyfully willing to submit to God's plans for his plans are always benevolent and good. Precisely because none of my words and actions are directed towards seeking and hoping for societal and political transformation, I have no fear of any social or political power. For the Bible teaches us that God establishes governmental authorities in order to terrorize evildoers, not to terrorize doers of good. If believers in Jesus do no wrong, then they should not be afraid of dark powers. Even though I'm often weak, I firmly believe this is the promise of the gospel. It is what I've devoted all my energy to. It is the good news that I'm spreading through throughout Chinese society. I also understand that this happens to be the very reason why the communist regime is filled with fear at a church that is no longer afraid of it. I hope God uses me by means of first losing my personal freedom to tell those who have deprived me of my personal freedom that there is an authority higher than their authority, that there's a freedom that they cannot restrain, a freedom that fills the church of the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. If this regime is one day overthrown by God, it will be for no other reason than God's righteous punishment and revenge for this evil. For on earth, there has only ever been a thousand-year church. There has never been a thousand-year government. There's only eternal faith. There is no eternal power. Those who lock me up will one day be locked up by angels. Those who interrogate me will finally be questioned and judged by Christ. When I think of this, the Lord fills me with a natural compassion and grieve toward those who are attempting to and actively imprisoning me. Pray that the Lord would use me that he would grant me patience and wisdom that I may take the gospel to them. So last part, separate me from my wife and my children, ruin my reputation, destroy my life and my family. The authorities are capable of doing all these things. However, no one in this world can force me to renounce my faith. No one can make me change my life and no one can raise me from the dead. These are very sobering words from someone who's holding on to a promise that is bigger than protect my church, protect my family. You know, let me bypass this persecution. You hear in that confession, somebody who's holding on to a bigger promise than just the comforts of life. Here's someone who's placing their hope in a kingdom that is eternal and someone who can keep him in a way that nothing else can. 
someone that can strengthen him in a way that nothing else can. So when we think about the promises given by God, they're not all good. There's also promised persecutions and trials and hardships, and that's part of the package. But what we can trust is that he is good, that we can cling to the promise of Jesus, that he is our wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. There are things that the world cannot take away. And this is the same God that we also believe in. This is my challenge for this community. And that is for us to expand our faith. If our faith is just enough for, man, I just want to make it through this season. That's all I want. We might end with a church that is, you know, you know, running, you know, and it's decent. But I feel like what God is after isn't just like, you know, just a church that meets here on Sundays. I feel like God is after something so much bigger. A church that is fiercely in love with Jesus. A church that will not allow the hardships of this past year to just be about, well, we just made it through this past year. It's a church that takes all those hardships and uses it as an opportunity to cling to the cross. A church that has experienced the provision, the sustenance of God, especially through trials and hardships. I feel like that's the kind of church that God is building here. And that's the kind of church that I'm signing up for. You know, if all we want to do here is to sing good songs and like hear nice messages and that's it. I don't know. That doesn't sound really enticing to me. I think I can find that elsewhere. But man, if through all this, we're clinging on to a much greater promise. And if through all this, we can come out of it on the other side really like loving Jesus with all our hearts. How amazing would that be? And how worthwhile this past year would be. It's like this past year was hard, but it's nothing, you know? If what we get at the other end is a church that is purified of idols, that doesn't look to other things for comfort anymore, that learns to be a family, not just through good times, but through hard times as well, Like, that is worthwhile. That is one marshmallow, you know, I'm willing to wait for. That is one marshmallow I'm willing to sacrifice a lot for. A church that is wholly devoted to God. So let's take a moment to pray. I'm just going to close today. I feel like this is a perfect opportunity for us to pray for our church.